Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And in this episode, I sat down with J.R. Havlin, who has been writing for The Daily Show for 17 years. He has over eight Emmys, I want to say. He may just have eight. And, and and if that's the case, thank goodness he finally got the Employee of the Month award to cap that off. I sat down with him at the Writers Guild, and I just want to thank the Writers Guild for hosting us. It's so exciting to hear from someone who's been able to have a job for so long in the entertainment industry, never mind a dreamy job at that. So got to hear about what that's like, how to deal with the politics of it, how to keep it still fresh and exciting, the transition from Kilbourne to Stewart. You do not want to miss hearing about that and what it's like to be a warm-up comic. I thought that that was like this cushy, kind of like perfect job for when you don't have your actual dream job. It made me nauseous hearing about it and hearing about what pilot season is really like when you start to book pilots, how hard it is. Anyways, it was a lot of fun to sit down with JR. Enjoy our interview in five, four, three, two, and one. Do this in front of my face? <laughs> Where my face lives? I like the I don't care. This is out of context. It doesn't matter. This is my face you do this in front of. Um, I'm at the Writers Guild with J.R. Havlin, and I am sitting in front of his face. <laughs> We're in the biggest conference room. Yeah, it seems unnecessary, like an unnecessary <laughs> amount of room for such a thing. Just because, like, I'm, it's nice to be with someone who's part of my guild. Can you explain to me when you would ever need a conference room this big? When you're... Meeting with one, two, three, give me a second, four, five, six, I just need another minute, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, give me, how much time you have? It was like 30 seats around this table. 35. But they all have like microphones, which is pretty sweet. I know, I just feel like it's, it's like... a double screen back there, like there's a lot of <laughs> graphic stuff going on here. <laughs> a lot of just like, this is where like their graphics person works. I think it's important to know where your union dues go. Mm-hmm. Um, now we could rent out this room as a as a penthouse and um, get a lot of money for it because we're it, in Tribeca. It would make a nice living room, except the lighting is very office-like. I like that we're at such clearly different parts of our careers where you're like, this would make a nice living room as a <laughs> veteran writer at The Daily yeah. Show, and I'm like, this yeah, would but make don't an be, entirely nice Don't be fooled home. into thinking this is anything like my living room. <laughs> but I just like that you were able to look at the room yeah. and be like, this makes a great living room, and I'm like, okay. this would be a great house. I mean, it's huge. <laughs> Can you imagine having this as, like, I don't know, I just... Uh, I like I, that, to me, this whole space could be a, a family unit. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I just went, I overdid it. I overshot. It's all right. You're doing well for yourself, and you Listen, totally I do deserved. Okay. I do okay. Um, so, let's, let's start at the beginning. I was uh, just out on my own doing a thing and away from... I was completely and utterly out of my every possible comfort zone that I ever could have had and um, and I think that has a lot to do with you know why I'm at the show after 17 years of being at the show is that a comfort zone is a thing that I'm I was very ready to get back into and um, and that's a kind of a weird way to describe it really because it's not you can't the, the show is too hard and too much of a daily grind to, you know, get comfortable. You know, you we're working all the time, but um, uh, but you know s- that stability was very uh, appealing to me because the 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 other part of my life was constant question mark. I I completely um, 
want to talk all about this. I mean, I think that's a perfect transition to it. Like, how did you transition? Because you were doing well in stand-up, and you were also doing stand-up at a time where stand-up was quite big. Now, sort of improv, I would say, is um, right, right. It, it yeah, is maybe, sort of yeah. king in some ways. Um, and at the time, stand-up really was. So how did you transition from that to writing? Um, I always thought that I, I never took... I, I didn't take writing classes. I didn't take acting classes either. But... Um, I fancied that stand-up was an avenue to writing or acting and that my more likely uh, path was to writing because I just had no experience with acting. I didn't see myself as that, even though I took acting classes. And you just before said you didn't take any acting classes. Um, did I say that? Yeah, you did. Oh, no, no, I didn't take acting classes before I came out here. Okay. I took them once I got going. Okay. Yeah, I took them in New York. And did you take writing courses here? No. Okay. Um, but I, so I, I saw my path out as, you know, in the writing, so that's what I would do all the time. That's what I kind of pursued and worked on. I started joke writing for Bill Maher for the Politically Incorrect. I mean, you know, when I, when I talked, when I talked my way into getting on the facts list at uh, Politically Incorrect, they immediately started using my jokes. So I got in there and was able to write jokes that they used at fifty bucks a pop. And so, you know, Bill with his writing staff and however many people were already faxing in, and the fact that he was doing literally like fifteen jokes a week was using three of my jokes a week, and that's like a big, big hit rate. Right away. Yeah, pretty much right away. That must be so gratifying. Yeah, it was really fun. So you, you got in there and you mentioned that the, the guy who had been at the Eagle with you um, also wrote for Bill Maher, too. Yeah, and, well, uh, yeah, because he and I, um, at one, we, we started doing the warm-ups. At, at Politically Incorrect. So what was that like to be... Because I've always wanted to be a warm-up comic. I think I'd It's different everywhere you go. For sitcoms, it's just this crazy, like, um, you know, Lord of the Rings adventure because you, you have to be out there keeping people literally captive for, like, four hours that they're sitting in the studio. Like, it's a nightmare. Have you ever gone to a sitcom taping? No. Oops. Oh, yes, I have. I have. I have. I'm lying. It's yes, a marathon. Yeah. And yes, the, and, that's right. and the guys out, whoever it is, is out there like every the whole yes. time, and it's really really crazy. And people want to leave. You can't let them go to the bathroom. It's a, it's ridiculous. At least the one I went to. I only went. And to I think that's it's fairly one, common. But I, I didn't realize that you couldn't. You weren't allowed to go to the bathroom. It's, I don't know. I might be stretching the truth there a little bit. But, <laughs> um, but uh, and like the warm up at the Daily Show, which I did when I back when I first started there. Um, is a different thing in that it's really just kind of like crowd work and fucking around and trying to really get them as riled up as you possibly can. It seems so fun. And then, but with Bill Maher's show, with Politically Incorrect, he insisted that you do material and nothing but material. And there was, um, and they, they taped it kind of sort of live to tape, so in time with the commercials. You know, oh, wow. so their breaks in taping were in line with the commercials, even though they weren't live. So that um, you would go out and you'd have like your five or ten minutes or whatever, and you'd have to do just material. And you're standing. Remember, he had like his seat in the middle and then two seats on either side of him. And so you're standing right in front of where he would be sitting, basically, and in front of the other chairs, but just literally like right in front of them. 
the, nobody's out there yet at the beginning. But you do your thing, and then they're starting the show, so you wrap it up with a joke. And then Bill comes out, and they, they start the show. And then you have to go out during the commercial breaks, which are two minutes and two seconds long, or whatever they are, and do material. Not crowd work, not anything. Do material in front of the people who are there, who could be like, you know, John Water, you know, I mean, whoever it is. I mean, just like, there's... There could be some very intimidating people. John Waters people. is incredibly intimidating. So, yeah, so they're really intimidating <laughs> people, like, sitting right... I mean, like, I could reach over and touch them. And having your boss right behind you. I mean, the yeah, and you're standing with your back to them. Oh, but God. <laughs> the But there, there are people coming up and putting makeup on everybody. The executive producer's talking to, um, talking to Bill, and you can hear him. Cameras are moving around and swinging all over the place. And... and um, and there's a there's a there, the guy running the this main um, stage guy is saying like one minute like right in the middle of your bit, and then it's, and so Danny and I we would have to time it so we would have our bits that we would know that we would get to a certain spot where when the guy said ten seconds you'd do your punchline and you'd get out of there. I mean that's unbelievable. I, I really was more familiar with the people who opened for for Colbert and and. Um yeah. The Daily Show. No, that's a totally different thing. And it thing. looks awesome, and it was such a perfect job for me because I'm such <laughs> that a was really hard enthusiastic, infusive person. But what you just said sounds like a real freaking tightrope. Super hard. Um, and so you were working, so you wrote for Bill Maher, and then you came to The Daily Show, or how did it happen? No, then, so, so I was doing just faxing jokes to him. I wasn't on staff, so I'm just faxing okay. jokes for 50, monologue jokes for 50 bucks a pop. And then I started doing the warm-up pretty soon after that. So now I'm doing both of them, and I'm finally, like, actually earning a sustainable living as, as, a, as a comic. Awesome. And, Congratulations. Yeah. And, um, and then when uh, I was there for about, you know, almost a year, when they were going out for the State of the Union address down to Washington, D.C., they were going to do live shows that week. I went up to uh, uh, the, one of the, produ- well, the co-producer, Doug Wilson, who was very friendly to me, and, and, um, and I asked him, this is another, like, foot-in-the-door kind of, like, you know, you force your way in. I asked him, do you have a warm-up for down in D.C.? And he said, you know what, I don't know. I'll ask and find out. I said, well, I'd be totally willing to do it if you need me. And he came back the next day and said, okay, well, listen, we, um, I talked to Bill and, 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 uh, um, and, and uh, uh, um, Scott Carter was the executive producer. I think maybe still is. And, uh, and they, here's the deal. We want you to come down and do the warm-up, and we also want you to sit down on the writers' meetings. And I was like, okay, well, that was more than I expected by a long shot. So I went down there and I slept for, I, I think in a week, I slept a total of 10 hours because I was just completely working my ass off and was killing it in meetings and like really like kind of making my mark and then doing the warm up and, you know, doing my thing. And it was, and then I came back and now I'm on staff on a trial basis for a three week trial. Even after proving yourself. Down there, I come back and I'm on three. I'm on a three-week wow. trial, and I find out later exactly why this is. At the end of the three weeks, I and this is an epic, ridiculous story. But at the end of the three weeks, uh, again, I'm like not sleeping a lot. I'm just really like trying to kill it, and it's going well. And I'm friendly with all the people there. I knew them all, and, and it's going really, really well. So it's Friday or whatever it is, and they're getting ready to say uh, like, I'm going to find out. Well, I'm, I'm hired, I guess, you know. And pretty much everybody on staff, the writing staff, thought I'm hired. 
they're meeting me across the street. I have to go in for my meeting with Bill and Scott and, and, uh, um, and Doug to find out that hopefully I'm hired. And there are 15 people that are waiting at the bar across the street to celebrate with me when I come over to tell them that I have the job. So I go in and I find out that I don't have the job, and, uh, but that I could work at any other show on television, you know, this kind of thing. And I don't know exactly why or what's going on, but they were so, they were so nice. Bill is not the nicest guy in the world, but, but Scott and Doug were great. And we're in Scott's office and he opens like this 50-year-old bottle of scotch and we're all talking and having this, so we're talking for like two hours. Oh, wow, so they thought you were so talented but they just couldn't hire well, you Well, that's just that bullshit kind of thing. Like, you could work anywhere on television except this job, which is the only one that you're looking at right now kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's just typical, like, it's between you and one other guy. You know, it's that kind of whole story. So, so I'm in there for two hours, and everybody's still hanging out across the street thinking, like, what the fuck is going on? They must be part of whatever it's company. I find out I don't have the job. I go back to my desk that I'd been sitting at uh, because to get my bag and, and uh, knowing that I have to go across the street and tell everybody that I don't have the job. And, and I find out that one of the reasons that I don't have the job is because this guy, Tim Long, who is, who is a, a, a giant in the industry now because he had since moved on, he was at Politically Incorrect and came back to Politically Incorrect as a big, huge wig at, at The Simpsons and, um, you know, look him up, he's a big guy. So he was had moved back to Canada or something, been working at Politically Incorrect, and was now coming back and was going to fill that spot, so I'm out. So the job wasn't, there wasn't really a job. There wasn't a job because they didn't know if Tim was coming yeah. back or not. Yeah. But with him coming yeah. back, now I'm out. Yeah. And, because, and so much so that, that the desk that I'm sitting at is going to be Tim's. And if Tim Long ever hears this, it might be amusing to him because he will have had no idea that this happened. That, that was, this was going on at all. No. Yeah. But because I was in the office for so long, the people who were preparing to welcome Tim back because he was a hero to them thought I was out of the building. They didn't notice my bag sitting next to the desk and decorated the whole desk. Welcome back, Tim. Balloons, confetti. <laughs> so, so I come back and see this shit all over the desk and my bag like very lonely sitting there. And I have to grab that bag and go across the street to tell the 15 people who are still hanging out, waiting to find out for sure that I have the job, that I don't. And then, once I do tell them that, I have to spend the next 10 minutes convincing them that I'm not lying. Like, almost comforting them. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. It makes me like you so much more, though. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. It was rough. That's horrible. It's... Oh, God. And yet probably one of the biggest gifts ever in my life. Well, I, I, you know, I felt embarrassed sort of now making a joke about Bill Maher, but I hope that that's okay that I said that about him. I mean, Bill was never pleasant to me. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are people that he's pleasant to, and yeah. I know that there were people that he was pleasant to on staff and that he, like, you know, that he hung with and that were his tight guys, you know. Yeah. But, um, but he did not make me feel comfortable at I think, a single moment in my existence there, which was always strange to me even when I tried to approach him because I thought, like, we're both stand-ups. We both worked here and there, and 
I just never got anything out of them. It was it was weird. I'm not well, exactly sure why that was. It's also weird in our business where you have to uh, somehow engender yourself to someone who may be an asshole to you, and it's not just indicative of him. I mean, I think that's indicative in general of you're so lucky to finally get a job, and then when you get a job, you don't want to get fired. And so, yes, you are lucky you, you got out of working there and were able to go work for someone who you do love. But it turns out, as it turns out, you know, at the time, of course, you don't know I that mean. at all. That's what I'm saying, is that, like, it's just this weird business where, like, everyone has the pressure of, like, I may be working for an asshole. But it is another level of pressure to be, like, I need to write something funny in this person's voice <laughs> while yeah, this yeah. person is not necessarily treating you nicely. Yeah, right. Because it's a whole different... Well, I had a small taste of that because it was, like, and I wasn't even really paying attention to it because actually at... Because the time I was there in D.C. and those three weeks that I was there were, were not bad. You know, I was doing, I was doing, I thought I was doing well, and I think everybody else thought I was doing pretty well. And Bill doing... wasn't saying, like, no, that's not funny, get the fuck out of here, and, or nothing like that. It was just that he, he was, he was never, like, like, unpleasant to me. He just wasn't pleasant to me, which right. was unpleasant, you know, and I, and I didn't get exactly why, but, uh, um, uh, but, you know, we didn't, we didn't click, and, and I didn't click with, the, you know, my material or whatever I was doing didn't click with him, so it didn't, I didn't get the gig, you know. And then what happens? Um, well, then they, but, but, so I don't get the gig, but I continue doing the warm-up, and they give me a $300 a week stipend to continue writing monologue jokes, but giving them, you know, a certain amount of them as a regular thing rather than paying me per joke now. But so then your jokes were clicking. It just sounds like this guy, Tim Long, is so good and has been there so long and his job really wasn't, there wasn't really an opening. Um, they didn't really put it that way maybe because they didn't want to put it on Tim and, and I it's wouldn't It's not even... on him. I'm just saying that like the job that they were offering you didn't really exist. It didn't exist. exist anymore, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I think it is. I can't remember them mentioning that but you know, that, that is, that was an aspect of it was that like they really didn't know whether or not he was going to come back for whatever reason. That's for it. some reason I have in my head He's a he's a Canadian citizen and wasn't sure what his work status would it be, could be, but that might be leave. completely ridiculous. He could have been pregnant and no one and yeah, he didn't yeah. want anyone to know, so he had to go yeah. to Canada to have the baby. But I, I feel like if they're taking your jokes and you're still the warm-up comic, it's not a personality thing. Yeah, the, the, right. Like they didn't want me. They didn't want to get me out of the building. Yeah. So, the, so that, I, you know, I was able to do that. But then that lasted through the because the you know the State of the Union in January, or whatever it is, late January, and then I worked there like kind of through February, and then I worked there through the year, and and it was I think at the end of that year when they went to L.A. and didn't take me with them. And, uh, um, they left you at the airport. Yeah, and, and then that was probably the end of 90. That might have been 95. We could look back and look, but I think it was. And then I was like, I went back, I was temping or something. And then in 96, in spring, I went to LA because I was taking acting classes during that summer too. That's when I took acting classes. So then I go out to LA to go to, to, uh, to go through, um, uh, uh, pilot season. As, as an actor? As an actor with, wow. uh, I had a manager and, a, and an unsigned agent. Okay. Um, at CAA and, and, uh, and uh, Cheryl something was her name. She was pleasant enough. Sandler. I stayed at her house. No, no, no. no. This is, you stayed at her house? For a few nights. I was staying, I was couch surfing. I was just staying at everybody's house. But that's house. a nice agent. Danny Vermont. I stayed at his, in his studio apartment for two weeks and we ate like aerosol cheese on saltine crackers pretty much every night for dinner. <laughs> and he used to be Danny DeVito? Yeah. 
So why did he switch his name? Because the actor Danny DeVito. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, no, no, why? It's funny <laughs> you bring that up. That doesn't make any. Uh, but I went out there and went through it, and but then went through the new thing of between you and one other guy. But I did get to, so the, I go through, and I never had any experience with this whole thing, so I, I, I'm going through these things. And the first one where I, you know, I don't know if you know this process, but you go to the casting agent, and then you go to a producer, and then you go to, like, another producer, and then you go to network. So the casting agent is just you in an office with one person on the other side of a desk, and you're reading these lines. And it's really awkward and terrible. But they like you or they don't. And then they have you go to the producers and it's you in an office with three people over a desk and you're reading lines. And then they like you or they don't. And they have you go on to another producer thing. And then they have you go to a big, huge room with like a bunch of stadium seating and 20 people, including the head of the network, who, you know, is there or whoever's running this particular show to see whether or not you're that person. It's you and one other person. And before you go into that audition, you have signed a contract for the money that you're going to make for the pilot and the money that you would make for the first six episodes in case it gets picked up so that if they choose you, you can't renegotiate. But that money was like 20 grand for the pilot and like 15 grand for each of the episodes. And I'm just, and I'm signing these contracts and I know it's between me and one other guy, supposedly. And the first one was for a pilot for, that Greg Giraldo made and it did get picked up for six episodes. And so... Um, I'm like going through these lines with Greg, you know, in the thing. And uh, um, this is about him being a lawyer. Is this when it was up against yeah, the Romano show? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I played the retarded like coworker guy, you know, the semi-retarded coworker guy. Or I was supposed to, but it went to this other guy. But so you sign this thing, and there's they're basically like sort of like common courtesy, industry courtesy is that they tell you that night whether or not you got it. Well, two hour goes by, two hours go by. They don't know, they haven't chosen. Hour goes by, two hours go by. They, they're not, they're not going to choose, they're going to let us know tomorrow. You have to try to sleep that night. You wake up in the morning. They still haven't chosen. 11 o'clock comes along. They want you to come back in um, at 1 o'clock and read again. How are you going to get anywhere in it? Oh, it's in New York. No, no, it's in L.A. In L.A., how are you going to get anywhere I had rented hours? a car. I had, a, <laughs> I, had a, I, I had rented, like, a, you know, a, a, a Urus or something <laughs> like that. And, uh, um, and I had a beeper. And, you know, this is in 80, 89, or no, 96. And, uh, um, and I go to, uh, uh, so I go in again to read again. And the same guy that I read against before was there, but then there's another guy. Or two more guys or something like that. So we read and then they say they're going to tell you again in an hour, you know, and it goes well in the thing. Did you know any of the other guys? The one guy that I was up against was a guy who, Carlos something is his name, um, Jalarak, something like that. And he, but I knew him because I'd seen him on TV a bunch of times, wow. you know, and, and, and he, in particular, there was an episode of Seinfeld where there was a pool boy that I think Kramer gets in a fight with and he played the pool boy and I knew that and I was like, you're that fucking guy. Like, you've done this before. Why is it me and you that they can't decide between? That doesn't make any sense at all to me. And so he's back there again but so are two other guys and we all read and then again, one hour, nope. Two hours, nope. One hour, one more hour, nope. Two hours, nope. They're going to tell us tomorrow and I find out I don't get it. It goes to that Carlos guy who got on and did six episodes and, you know, made all the, you know, did his thing. 
But the guy who ran the network, and for some reason that's the name I can't remember, um, he was there at all of the auditions and liked me, so fast-tracked me through another uh, pilot for Caroline Ray. And, and What was that pilot? Uh, it was called Daisy's Mom, and she just played a little girl named Daisy's mom and single mother, blah, 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 kind of thing, you know. And... So I don't, so I go straight to producers on that and then they send me back to network. So now I'm back at network signing another contract, me and one other guy. Same, same big wig up in the crowd, even though I haven't met him. Was it the other three guys from the other? No, this is a totally different (laughs) role. Yeah, different different guy. So it's a different guy. So I go into that one and read and they're supposed to tell us, you know, that night. I signed the contracts for 26000 or something for the pilot and sixteen per episode after that. And I'm like 10000 in debt and got nothing and I'm eating cheese and waiting to go back to New York with nothing. And, um, you know, a friend of mine is taking care of my cat, that kind of thing. And I... So they don't tell us again. They don't know. Another hour, they don't know. Two hours, they don't know. They're going to tell us tomorrow morning. 9 o'clock, they don't know. 10 o'clock, they don't know. 11 o'clock, they want you to come back in at 1 and read again. Again! To do the same fucking thing. And I go back and I do it again, and now it's me and the one guy who was there before, and then another guy. And we all read, and then we go back, don't find out, don't find out, find out the next day I didn't get it. But the big wig guy still liked me, gave me a bit part for $1,800 or something, a one-line part in this pilot. And so I got to be on set and do this whole thing and stay a little while and get it, you know, enough money to fly me back and pay for dinner kind of thing for a few weeks. So I had submitted to The Daily Show. Liz Winstead had asked me to submit to The Daily Show earlier that year. Did you know her from a stand-up? Yeah. And, um, but I didn't know where that was at, you know. I didn't know what was going on with that. And I had a meeting with Liz and Madeline in L.A. while I was out there for pilot season. And were they living out there? No, they might have been out there just kind of interviewing other people. They were just out there on a trip, and they were interviewing some other, meeting with some other writers who were L.A.-based, okay. potentially. Um, but I met with them while I was out there. Um, but I didn't really read into that, like, oh, they're into me, kind of, they want me to do this job. It was a good meeting and all that, and I knew that, like, it meant there was still some potential there. But, you know, pilot season is, like, you know, late February, March... April into May kind of thing. And by the time I got finished with it and hanging out a little later than I thought it would because I got that one bit part, I came back in... I'm flying back, like, in early March, or um, early May. It's now, like, 15... I mean, it's not, this is not some tragedy, but I'd never been in debt before, so I was, like, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in debt, and it was just a, kind of a bad feeling, and... And I knew I was going to have to go back to, like, temping or whatever. And um, uh, and I got out there, and I was pretty sure the Daily Show thing was dead because I knew that they were starting in the beginning of June that year. And, um, and it was already into May. And I hadn't, it was, like, the second week of May, and I hadn't heard anything. And I land, and I'm wondering what I'm going to do. And I think before I even got... Um, went and bothered getting some shitty job. I got a call from them, from them like in the middle of May, that I got that job and it was starting in three weeks. 
You're kidding. No. And this is before, I just want to preface for people who don't know, this is before Kilborn. Well, this is Kilborn. This is yeah. coming on, but that Madeline and well, Liz... Kilborn started it. I mean, yeah. Well, Madeline and Liz created it. I right. think a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, Kilborn didn't hire me. Madeline and Liz did. Yeah, and that he came on as the he, host. They already knew he was the host at that point. Did they want him though? Yeah. They did want him. Yeah. And so because they wanted the I, the original idea was sort of a sports center for Comedy Central. Got it. And Doug, I, maybe it was Herzog. I'm not sure, but somebody was a fan of Craig's from Sports Center. Wasn't he on MTV Remote? I thought they switched. I thought no, he, he was John... a he was a Sports Center guy. Okay. He was a Sports Center guy, and but he was a funny Sports Center guy, like Chris, you know, you know, early Chris Berman. Okay. Oh wait, and so I didn't realize that it was a sports show, not a political show, when Madeline and Liz started. It was. It wasn't even a political show, really. It was a. It was a pop culture show at the beginning. I didn't know any of that. It wasn't sports. Craig was not coming on to do sports. He was just coming on because he was a funny guy on the sports network, that had some. Appeal and had a following, and they used that to get this show going. But the beginning of it was, you know, at this point, the equivalent of Lady Gaga jokes, kind of. You know, there was, I mean, you can't find the Kilborn episodes anywhere anymore. Yeah, why is that? Um, How are they able to there, get rid of there them? Are, so there well? are various theories, but I'm not sure what's true, so I, I won't, I won't, uh, um, I, I, I won't really venture a guess. Well, then this is a great segue. You've gone through two hosts. You've had Craig and John. You've had numerous um, showrunners and producers. How have you managed to uh, not get in? <laughs> how, how have you managed to navigate the politics? I'm a, I'm a nice guy. You know that. Um, there are a lot of nice people who who, who um, there, there, aren't able it, to it's, it's that. never been it's never been a terribly political situation, you know. I mean, it, it is pretty much always there. The 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 asshole boss or asshole coworker syndrome is an anomaly at the Daily Show, and always has been. And but there've been a couple, and and it's that person who so desperately doesn't fit in that they end up having to go away. You mean, meaning that the jerk is the one Yeah, the jerk the doesn't win there. That's fascinating. Is the that jerk, wonderful? Well, the jerk has won for periods of time there, but, but never over the long period of time. And, and I've, never had, I've never had a big, huge problem with anybody except, except one guy that I just didn't get along with at all. And how did you deal with that internally where you just... Were you working together, at writing jokes together? I guess what I'm really asking is, like, how do you write jokes with someone who you don't really like? Or if you don't really like your you, sense of you, humor. You ask to stop and move to another office. <laughs> you do? Yeah. Okay. But so you do say something at some point. At one point I did, yeah. Okay. Um, and the, the other stuff that I was bringing up was, you know, I mean, it was written about in the papers, you know, that Craig wasn't very nice to, to Liz, for example. Well, that was just that whole, you know, he made a stupid joke. Craig just... Oh, is that it? That's all that it was? Well, that was all from him telling, uh, what was it, uh, um, which magazine was it? Like Vanity Fair or Esquire or something yeah, like maybe, that? Yeah, I think it was GQ. Vanity. Maybe it was... No, I think... Yeah, it was one of those. I, mean, I should know that, but I feel like it was Vanity Fair or GQ. But that's all it was, that he said something really obnoxious in an article. He said, you know, how do you get along with... The question was sort of like, how do you get along with Liz? And he said, oh, we, we get along fine. And they basically did, you know. They had this sort of... They had sort of like a... You know, their relationship was very... Not to... It was, it was kind of like a, the, the Cheers, you know, Sam, Diane kind of thing without, you know, which is not to say that Liz is a, like a bubblehead kind of, you know, like Diane-ish, but 
Um, I thought Diane was very smart. I, well, I guess maybe she was. Ted so Dean's yeah, right. Because yeah, right, 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 right. But it, but she, but she, yeah. It, well, it is sort of like that because it, you know, there's like the smart, relatively strong woman, the the jockey yeah. guy, the former jock I mean, guy, yes. who just is very appealing in a certain way. And they, but there's not a, there's never a love thing, but it was just sort of like there's, um, it was just that. Sam and Diane, and I didn't mean to say that Ted Danson was an idiot. I meant that. Uh, the character, Sam. Yeah, right, right, right. Sam but, was, was a yeah, little more and, charming and, and sort of happy-go-lucky. And, we, you know, if you take the sexual aspect out of that, the, the relationship was that same kind of thing where it's like, well, I'm a, I, this person is appealing to me for a certain reason, but, but, but awful to me for other reasons. Got it. You know, that kind yeah, of Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so and was, some conflict is natural and healthy and helpful. Well, yeah, but they, they you know, they... They served a purpose for each other on top of That's, that. I just said that yeah. um, differently than you did, right, and then right, you right. just negated what yeah, I said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't negate it. I supported <laughs> it, but in, in, um, in, in other specific terms. So, and he's joking. He's telling what he believes to be a joke that he doesn't realize could fly back into your face. And, 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 it, and it did. You know, it was like early, early feminist, you know, like alert kind of thing. And, you know, for good reason. I mean, that's a pretty easy one to jump on. Shouldn't be saying that about your female boss. And, um, and so that became a big, huge thing. And, uh, um, and Craig had to make this, like, you know, um, apology to the staff that one of the writers taped on, a, like, an old-school tape recorder. He probably still has it. And, uh, um, and uh, I can't remember if Liz was in that meeting, probably not, but she left the show as a result of this. Got, so that was very early on that she left. Why did she leave the show as because a result? Because she didn't want to work there anymore because of that. She couldn't work with this guy and they wanted to keep him. And I, I don't know what her deal was or what buyout or whatever, but you know, she's still listed on the show as a creator. So yes. they, I don't know if they got bought out or they still get something out of it, I'm not sure. But uh, um, So the joke did offend her? Yeah, well, you know, uh, well, uh, I, I think Liz is more thick-skinned than that and understood Craig well enough to know that he was attempting to tell a joke yes. that was a bad joke. Yes. I think probably what, if anything, really seriously bothered her, um, and you could ask her this too, yeah. but I think if anything seriously bothered her, it was probably just the ridiculous coverage of it. Uh, you know, but Kilborn got the thing off the ground, and, and I liked him just fine. He was pleasant enough to me. It was nice to, it was fun at that point you to work. You would have blown him. Well, yeah, totally. If uh, um, the, it was fun to work with somebody who, at, at that point, he was just saying whatever we wrote, you know? So we were, like, the show was filled with our actual thoughts and lines, you know? And, uh, um, That's fascinating. Yeah. So, like, working for him, you really felt as a writer that what you wrote on the page got on air. Right, but that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily make for the best television. That just makes for you feeling a little better about yourself. You know? Um, that's come full circle. <laughs> and, uh, and what you, when, when, kind of, as a writer, when you watch The Daily Show, you, it's very difficult uh, to say, like, oh, that's my joker, that's my joker. It's, you know, it's, it's not that often. And some people have, do better than others in that respect, where it's like, that is exactly the joke that I wrote. But the, uh, because of the way the show is put together, it's not so much the jokes are sort of secondary, it's the packaging and stuff. And even though you can say, like, oh, I 
I'm the one that decided to package it this way, that doesn't really translate as, yeah, but which joke did you tell that I laughed at? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> you, know. you did all, uh, tell me at one point that if someone higher up suggested a joke, and this isn't necessarily in relation to you, but meaning like if a lower writer said, said a joke, that joke might not get on, but then if someone else did, if they suggested the same joke, it might. Only because if you're at a certain position, you, you're, you go deeper into the rewrites, you know? At one point or another, you know, depending on your position, you, you get cut out of the re rewriting process. And even as the executive producer or the head writer who might be in the room for the final rewrite, um, de depending on you know how quickly things need to get done, or what needs to get done, or or or, or how much you know John wants to do his thing, um, John might kind of barrel through, and any changes that get made get made just so that he can put it in his voice and tell this joke and do this thing. And and then sometimes you're sitting there and trying to think of another joke, and you say something, and he goes along with that. But was know, John always so hands on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the from the beginning. Oh yeah. And so how did he you... did a really good job of transitioning into the show, an amazing job. Like, because he, the first year he's there, you go back and you watch the first year of shows, he's doing the show that we used to do, basically. Yes. I mean, the, I, I look back at the very first show he did, where he started, his first line was, I, you know, welcome to The Daily Show, I'm Jon Stewart, Craig Kilborn is on assignment in Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> is that hilarious? Yeah. And, uh, um, and I actually pitched for um, John Oliver to tell that same joke when, when he took over for John in the summer, but so they didn't funny. go along with it. Why? It's so funny. Because I mean, nobody knew it. Nobody okay. would have known what he was talking about. I know, but it's actually funny on its own. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, um, and, and on that show, I, had, I, you know, I was watching that show, and I was like, oh, I wrote that joke. It was one of those things, where, oh, you wrote that joke. And the joke, so this gives you an idea of something that you can immediately realize we would never have done as a story. The story that John Stewart was covering on the Daily Show was that um, uh, was that Popeye was going to get married to Olive Oil. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's the, that's the level that I'm talking about. That's the change that the show has gone through under John, where he said like maybe we don't have to do Popeye olive oil jokes anymore. Was that exciting to be on a show that was constantly changing? Yeah, that's what kind of keeps you there. But l let me tell you the joke. Yeah. So the so we do this whole thing about how he's going to get married to Olive Oil's insisting he's going to get married, or they're they're going to that's the big news in that cartoon is that Popeye's going to get married to Olive Oil. There was a joke in there about Wimpy saying he's going to cater the wedding, but um, you know he you you have to pay him on Tuesday. You know, just all these just yeah. classic Popeye <laughs> jokes, and and then the act closed with my joke, which was that um, as for the wedding night, Olive Oil only had one, uh, one request, um, no fisting. And then you show, <laughs> and because of, I think it even said, because of the size of Popeye's forearms. So, and, and, <laughs> and you spelled it all out as if people wouldn't even I don't know if we, know. no, but no, you just see it. You, you, you just, just see, see a, the forearms. You see a shot of Popeye with his Women forearms. Women can deduct, and right. men. Right. So that gives you an idea of, like, um, John did that, basically, for the first year. And also the format that we used to do it in, like, headlines and, uh, and in other news. And it was just this little thing and all these little music stings and stuff like that. And, um, and five questions. And, yes. And uh, um, then that was in 99. And then um, 
at the beginning, so he's there for a year. He starts in the beginning of 99. And then towards the end of the year, pretty quickly you see like certain things, certain more serious topics start popping up. And, um, but then by the end of the year, coming into 2000, it was clear that John was like, all right, it's time for me to take, really take this show over and start turning it around. I don't know if this is exactly what was going through his head, but in, in my you know, experience, this is kind of how it unfolded um, for me that we started doing more political stuff and, and being, you know, taking it more seriously and, and realizing the potential, you know, semi, beginning to realize the potential of the show. And I don't know if this was him planning that far ahead, but of course the election was coming up in 2000. Yes. So little did we know what it would turn into, but when it did, we were, we just happened to be practicing that whole year and we were poised to take advantage of that in a way that nobody else really could take advantage of it. Because you nobody were a satirical news program by that point. Well, but there's just nothing else that was set up to take, yeah. to, to, to cover it the way that we would cover it. You know, a little bit of Saturday Night Live, you know, of Weekend Update, but not really. You know, it's just not their bag to get that in-depth with certain No, things. it seems that it was made for, I mean, I would say the only positive of the election would be that it was made for you all. Well, then what happened was, was comedy the gold, coverage went nuts when everything started going south and they didn't know how to cover a story that was not unfolding in front of them but that they had to cover so that's really like that was the beginning of like fox and 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 cnn and uh, and msnbc around at that point um battling it out to try to break a story that didn't exist and and we started, and we were watching that saying, like, this is, we should be doing some of this. Right. And that changed the show over from just covering topics to covering people who were covering topics. I mean, the other irony to yeah. me is, like, he's worked all day and then gets on camera and is completely full of life and energetic. Right. Well, he, he reserves it. You know, he, he reserves it to an extent, although he does come in every morning kind of singing and dancing into the morning meeting. And, and I feel like that's a, a conscious effort to inject energy into, the, into his workplace and be like, you know, this is, there's no time for frowning around here. Let's, let's do, you know, let's do what we do. It's time to do it again. You know, wake up, kids. Do you ever get uh, burnt out, bored, frustrated? Frustrated all the time because there are a lot of very good people working there who are doing the same thing. And, and, uh, um, and, and the process is one where, um, you know, you're out of it at a certain time, like I said, and it's, uh, um, even, even if you are a head writer or executive producer, um, the, you know, the, the real, like, personal ownership or sense of pride in the actual material that's going out there is, doesn't, doesn't really exist on a very high or consistent level. <coughs> uh, but, but you are still working at a show that you can take some pride in and that deals, with, that, that, that deals with uh, um, uh, you know, significant content. Uh, you know, and and, and interesting content. And throughout the show, we're still writing great jokes that end up on the ground. And we're having fun doing it. And we 
you know, I bring my dog into work. And I know that really messed me up for life because you know, because like, you bring your dog. I into walk work. to work every day, and it's sort of like you know. I got a dog after seeing you and Paul Danello brought their dogs to work, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to get a dog, and then I'm going to get a job. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's just, not the order. No. No. So that's. But you I know, love so, my dog. Um, it, it. You know there are. Uh, uh, I think when you talk to people who write in sitcoms and stuff like it, like you see a sitcom and it says written by so-and-so and then you ask that person like, oh, hey, what was it? Wow, you wrote that episode. And, you know, they tell you exactly how that episode got written. And, and next time you watch the Emmys and you see the person that won best writing for an episode of a, of a certain sitcom, unless it's actually Mitch Horowitz or, you know, somebody like that, then they're going to be up there doing nothing but essentially apologizing for being the person who is standing there when they had the percentage of what they had to do with the thing that got picked was embarrassingly low. Do you know what I mean? Because that's how it, that's how it operates. It's- <clears throat> so it's not like... So I never get that feeling like, oh, man, if only I'm stuck in a place that is stifling my creativity... It's, it's not. It's just not using a really super satisfying amount of it in, in, in the end. But I still go in every day and have a good time and have, we have like two meetings a day where there's super fun and super stimulating and informative and interesting conversations because we're not just telling jokes. We are the whole time, but we're also discussing like, what is seriously wrong with this thing and what do we think of this thing and what did we see that went along with this thing and what, how are we going to package this thing and, and what does this really, really like mean to us? Like we have serious conversation. I never let the idea that there was something, that there was supposedly something better out there for me get, any, get larger than the knowledge that what I have is ridiculously awesome. So, you know, that just, that never that threshold never got to the point where it spilled over and I and I left to go get that other thing that's so much better than what I have because you get tired of the thing that you currently possess you know this was an absolutely uh, lovely time so thank you for doing part one and part two Mm, part one was okay but coming back for part two after a night's rest was fantastic thank you so much JR That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month Show. Thank you so much to Ian Mazov for editing this together. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out ways you can get involved, donate, nominate someone, get a mailing list. And if you're so inspired, please do um, leave a very nice note on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And it really helps business. It helps morale around here. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thanks. And I will talk to you very, very soon. 